Let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I'm checking my watch. Hold on. Put your seatbelts on. Listen, we're going to walk through about two and a half chapters this morning. So hold on. I'm going to take a couple of stops. We're going to stop at the cross. We're going to stop at a couple of places prior to. We're going to hang out at the tomb just for a little while. Okay? So y'all hang on to your belts. Let's get settled up right here. I'm not going to read this entire portion of Scripture. If I did, that'd be my sermon, which would be good enough because it's God's Word, right? And God's Word, where we are, it finds us at the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus has told his disciples, let's get this thing prepared because I'm fixing to show you what it's like to observe the Lord's Supper. So he tells the disciples to go out and get prepared. We start with the plot to kill Jesus in verse 22, and excuse me, chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. But I just want to tell you this story that I found that I thought was pretty good um, for this morning. A guy by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this in his book, The Cross Through the Open Tomb. He said, years ago there was a missionary in Turkey who was having great difficulty making the Mohammedans understand why they should trust in Jesus Christ. These are better called as uh, those that are of Islam. One day he was traveling with some Muslims along an unmarked road when they came to a fork in the road. At this point, there was a tomb of a Mohammedan, which is a holy man. It was a tomb for this holy man. And while they were trying to decide which fork to take, the missionary said, let's go to the tomb and ask the dead man. They all protested. The dead man can't give us no information. See that little house over there? Let's go over there and ask a living man. You are quite right, the missionary said. Never forget that Muhammad is dead. He can give you no help or information. In him is no life. But Jesus Christ is alive. And he will give you eternal life if you will trust in him as your Savior. And I myself add, as your Lord. And is that, isn't that the truth? You're not going to get an answer from a dead man. you got to go to someone who's alive to get some information. You need to go to Jesus. He is the one who has risen from the grave, and he is alive forevermore. Now, I'm going to hop, step, and skip through a lot of this, okay? And then I'm going to sit down in a couple of places and talk to you about what the Lord's led me to talk to you about with the cross and the empty tomb, okay? So here we go. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. You'll notice a commonality, and, and I didn't have to try too hard for this. A lot of preachers love to alliterate what they do, okay? They just love to. Boy, and they will fight through a thesaurus to make things work. I'm telling you what. But um, as I was studying through this, things pretty well fit. In verses 1 through 6, we have Judas possessed. It tells us that in verses 1 through 6. It tells us all about how the time came that Satan entered Judas there in verse 3. He surnamed Iscariot, and he was numbered among the twelve. Now, I'm not going to read that whole passage of Scripture, but I want you to understand this. If a person is not open to Jesus, he's open to Satan. If a person is not open to Jesus, he's open to Satan. It's just that simple. Judas acted like he was open to Jesus. No doubt he convinced those around him that he was open to Jesus. But the fact is, in his heart, Judas was closed to Jesus. And though he was a disciple of Jesus externally, he was a disciple of Satan internally. Now I want you to hold that little thicket, that little thought in your mind. 
Because I'm going to come back to something about Judas later on that the Lord, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I don't usually say stuff about the Lord giving me something. But boy, as I was studying, it hit me hard. Y'all hold that little thought about Judas betraying Jesus. And you're probably knowing where I'm going to go. We'll get there. Just hold on. The second set of verses there is verses 7 through 23 of chapter 22, entitled, uh, The Passover Prepared and the Lord's Supper. You see that? Judas possessed, Passover prepared. We're going to get there. During the Old Testament, God instituted many feasts and ceremonies. And this was one of them. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And why was it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread? It was because the Jews were trying their best to get out of Egypt. And they were getting out so quick they didn't have time for their bread to, to rise or put the leaven in there. So they eat as in, in commemoration and memory of that. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so we have that as well. Also, we see here uh, that, that in this, in Jesus, then, is the fulfillment of this annual feast. Through his body and his blood, we receive God's eternal forgiveness. And we see that there. We see that, uh, look over there in verse 17 of chapter 22. It says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. You see, he has submitted to the will of God. Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they all began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now we know if you look back at verses 1 through 6 that it would be Judas who would betray Jesus. That's the Passover prepared. And as we look at this, I've entitled this Face Like Flint, Three Meals. That's the first meal. Now you may say, why Face Like Flint? Where is this? I, I haven't heard you talk about this yet. Well, in Isaiah chapter 50, it's a prophetic message that is given by the prophet Isaiah. And uh, it walks us through there, and it tells us about how uh, he would not be despised, and he would set his face like a flint, and he would not be ashamed. God the Father would not let those things happen to Christ his Son. And so he set his face like a flint. Last week, we looked in Luke, where Luke says that Jesus uh, steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. He had sent his disciples before him to go into Samaria and ask them to set a place. But the Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't like each other, okay? They just didn't. So the Samaritans were not kind. They were not hospitable to the disciples. And so the disciples, in their flesh, they say, can we call down fire and just melt these people down to nothing? And Jesus says, you have no idea what manner of spirit you're speaking in. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy lives, I came to save them. And because he had set his face like flint, he, he departed and they went on and they stayed in another village. Because he knew what had to happen in Jerusalem. So he set his face toward that. Jesus set his face toward the cross and he set his face toward the tomb and ultimately toward the ascension where he could be back with his father on the right hand where he started out at, where he was glorified and praised forevermore from eternity past. And then also for eternity future, he'd be praised. But he took this short stint on earth where he was mocked and cursed and spat upon and beaten for you and for me. 
And he looked forward to the day that he'd be back up there by his father where he would receive the true glory due to his name and to his person. But here we see that he, he institutes this Lord's Supper over his broken body and his shed blood. We see where the disciples, they're always arguing about who's going to be the greatest. So greatness is purported. Look in there in verses 24 through 30. Jesus' disciples, they were extremely ambitious. They're extremely ambitious. At least two other times prior to this episode in the upper room, Jesus discussed the meaning of true greatness with them. But they found it easy to slip back into their old ways. So Jesus, patient as ever, instructed them again about how they were supposed to behave around one another or toward one another. The disciples needed Christ's instruction on why pursuing greatness is not their goal, neither should it be for us as well. The Lord points out three truths in these verses up until you get to verse 30, 24 through 30. He says, first, the Lord reminds them that the pagan kings were self-centered and they were falling, the disciples were falling into the same trap, desiring greatness. Second, the Lord tells them that true greatness comes in service. It doesn't come in a title. It doesn't come in a position. True greatness comes in service. And third, their greatness is only granted by the grace and authority of Christ. If you are in any place of authority, any place of power, understand it's not by you alone. It's by God's grace that you have that opportunity. So you take that opportunity to glorify him and to bring praise to him, not to yourself. Because in a moment's notice, those things can be removed from you. But the power and the glory and the authority will never be removed from Christ. So we always trust in Christ. Look at verses 31 through 34 of chapter 22. The Lord told uh, Peter, told Simon Peter, he said, Listen, the devil's asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon Peter. And he tells him what's going to happen to him. Jesus tells Peter, You're going to deny me. This denial is a part of the sifting by Satan. But even in Peter's denial, Jesus knew the ultimate outcome. And that is, Peter will be reinstated. And he will lead the disciples going forward in building the kingdom of God. Peter was instrumental and vital to the work of Christ going forward. And from this news, we ought to learn to assess matters carefully before settling on any immature judgment. Trials, even trials from Satan, are not always out of God's will. Just recall Job and his problems. That wasn't, God said, you know, Satan came before God and said, hey, what about you? He come before God. And Satan didn't even request Job. God said, hey, have you heard of my servant Job? Many people think Satan come up there going, hey, I've seen Job. And, and boy, he's just got it good, don't he? And, and God's like, no, that's scary. Lord, please don't ever treat me like Job. <laughs> please don't ever treat me like Job. I hope he never does that. But listen, I want you to understand, neither is a temporary setback or sin counterproductive. For God specializes in working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We must never overlook the marvelous nature and works of God's grace. We must never overlook those things. But here, Peter, he is, it is predicted that he is going to deny, he's going to deny excuse me, the Lord Jesus. Matter of fact, he tells in there in verse 34, which is a very, uh, very known verse, the Lord tells Peter, I tell you, Peter, 
the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Let's look at verses 35 through 58. Swords are purchased. The Lord tells him, he says, look, you know, the first time I told you, I told you not to pack a money bag, not to pack a knapsack, not to bring a sword, not to bring an extra cloak. You know, I told you all that the first time. But this time I'm telling you to do this. Go sell whatever you got. Go sell them. He tells him, he says, uh, uh, go buy. He who has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise, a knapsack. He who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this uh, which is written must still accomplish, be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And the Lord responded to them, that's enough, or it is enough. So they found two swords real quick, and they said, that's enough swords. We don't need any more. So the swords were purchased. Jesus redirects the disciples from the previous command. And before the Lord told them not to take anything along with them on the missionary journey. But now the Lord knew. Things were about to change. Jesus was not going to be with them anymore. Jesus wasn't going to be able to walk with them and be able to take care of them as he needed to, as they had, been, had grown accustomed to. It says, while, the, while we trust the Lord supremely, the Lord doesn't call us to be, you know, unprepared for life. God wants us to be prepared for life, and he wants us to go out. You know, we need to make a living to support our family. Some people say, well, I don't believe that. i got to live by faith. But you live by faith in poverty, okay? Listen, but the Lord's called us to be smart and wise. He's given us wisdom and knowledge. He's given us skills and talents. And he says, use them for my glory, and I'll take care of you. Sometimes he takes care of us with, with minimal. Sometimes he takes care of us with a lot. But either way, he takes care of us. We glorify him in it. Don't, don't regret where God's got you at the moment. Just be thankful that God's got you. Things can change in a moment. I mean, wow, today of all days, <laughs> things can change in a moment. Things can change in a moment. Let's look at the selfless prayer of Christ, verses 39 through 46. Coming out, Christ went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. We find Jesus giving a selfless prayer. Jesus distanced himself for more focused prayer at this vital juncture in the journey. He set himself apart. And as he prayed, he prayed this selfless prayer. He said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. For us today, we should be praying the same type prayer. God, not my will, but thy will be done. God knew what was best for his son. God knows what's best for his sons and daughters. But are we taking the time to pray to him? Maybe you're looking for a new job. Maybe you're looking for your career. Maybe you're looking like where you're going to go to school and college. 
Maybe you're thinking about what courses to take. Maybe you're thinking about you know, starting a family or getting married, whatever it may be. Listen, take the time and pray. Don't pray, Lord, I want this. Approve of it. That's what most of us do, right? Lord, I want this. Will you approve of it? Oh, you don't. It must not be your will. <laughs> must not be your will. I mean, like, you, you, we got to come to Christ and say, God, what is your desire for me today? What is your desire for me? What do you want me to do with my life? At this point, in this juncture in my life, what do you want me to do? And the Lord is faithful. And he will give you clarity. It might not be at that ideal moment, but keep praying. Be steadfast. I mean, Jesus even multiple times went out, distanced himself to pray, to talk to the Father. He was constantly desiring the will of the Father, the, the knowledge of the Father, so he could know what he needed to do. That's what we need to do. We need to constantly, on a routine, go out and get alone and get along with the Lord so we can hear him. Remove all distractions. Before I get up here to preach most weeks, I'll take my keys and I'll take my cell phone and I'll put them underneath the pulpit here. Because if not, I'll stick my hands in my pockets and I'll piddle with my keys. It's a bad habit I got. It, it, it doesn't look good for me to have my hands in my pockets and the keys make racket and it's just a bad habit. It's very distracting. And it might be distracting for you, I don't know, but I'm trying to hide behind the pulpit. But uh, I don't have any keys because I put them down here today. But I try to remove distractions. We try to keep things to, a, to, a, to the minimal. I mean, you think about this, and I'm not trying to throw any shade up here to our sound booth, but you know, you don't really think much about the sound booth, folks, Miss, Miss April and, Sean, and, and Brother Sean up there, unless there's a, a glitch on the screen. But if there's not a glitch on the screen, you probably wouldn't think twice about it, would you? Because we've removed the distractions. We try to make things as streamlined and as easy as it can be so your mind can be focused. And we have to do that in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to remove the distractions so that we may be focused on Christ. And that's what he did. Look at verses 47 through 53. Why did they buy a sword? I don't really know why because Jesus is about to do something that's counterproductive to using a sword. But anyway, these guys come in and, and uh, Judas is leading the way. And Judas comes in, and, and he, he comes in, and he finds Jesus. And what he tells him, you find out in another gospel, he says, I'm going to point out which one is Jesus by giving him a kiss. Now, a kiss, normally you'd think, boy, that's really weird for a man to kiss another man. But in Jewish culture, when an apprentice would come into their master, they would kiss him on either cheek to show that this is my master. They wouldn't do that to just anybody. This is my master. This is, who I, this is who I follow after. And so it wasn't at all abnormal or out of, the, out of the way. Jesus knew what the purpose was in that kiss. You know, Jesus says something earlier in the Gospels prior to this account. And he's quoting an Old Testament scripture. And Jesus says, you know, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I wonder, and I knew, I know he knew this. There were some things that the Bible tells us that Christ put aside so that he could be uh, more human. But I fully believe that when he was saying that, he knew by, by the way he would be betrayed. How many of us today, 
we call ourselves disciples. We draw real near to Christ. We might even be close enough to say, he's my master. We kiss him just as Judas did. But our hearts are far from him. We would betray him in a moment's notice if it benefited us for what we thought was the good. We know what came from Judas's betrayal. He was given 30 pieces of silver. Other gospels have the account of what happened with that. The scriptures tell us that Judas was given that money. He went out, he betrays Christ. He gets brokenhearted, kind of like Peter does. But he's done the work that he needed to do. Satan had possessed him. He goes back into the in before the chief priests. And he says, take this money back. And he throws this money back at him, the 30 pieces of silver. I've seen this in a movie, so it kind of pictures in my mind, but I know in Scripture, he gives them back the money. They take those 30 pieces of silver, they go out and buy a field. That field to this day is known as the field of blood. Because it was purchased by the, by the money that was given to Judas to betray Jesus. How many of us have come so close to Christ that we would kiss him, but yet betray him? For things that, that, are, that are of this world. They will pass away. For money. We've done it. We've abandoned him. To pursue a career. We've abandoned him. For more money in our IRA. Or our retirement. We've abandoned Christ. We've turned against him. And we are Judas's at heart. We need to be careful. Mindful. And aware. Of our own hearts. If we are disciples. Let us continuously follow him. Don't turn away. There's nothing greater in our lives that we can have at the top priority than Jesus Christ. Nothing greater. Look there in verses 54 through, well, let's look at 54 through 62. 54 through 62, Peter denies Jesus and then he weep, weeps bitterly. It says, having arrested him there, verse 54, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him. You know what I mean? You ever looked at somebody, you kind of see them, you know, they're outside, it's dark because this is a, a trial, it's a kangaroo court, They've, they pulled Jesus in at night so that other people couldn't know what was going on. And Peter's sitting there by the fire, and the light's flickering on his face, you know. People are moving about, so you can't really see. He's trying to be uh, conspicuous, so they can't pick him out. And this girl's like, I, I know him. He's one of them. He's one of them. This man was also with them, verse 57, but he denied him. But he denied Christ, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, Another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow was also with him, for he is Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. This is how close Peter was to Jesus. This, this is pretty close. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. 
he was so close. He wasn't quite as close as Judas with the kiss. But buddy, he was, he was, in, he was close enough to make eye contact with the Lord once he denied him three times. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a sad story. You know, Peter following so close, be it denying him so emphatically. But you know, it's, it's also a hope-filled story. Peter was broken and he wept bitterly when he realized what he had done. He was so brokenhearted over what he had done. I mean, Jesus even told him, this is what you're going to do. And he still went out and did it. How many of us do that? The Lord tells us, this is, don't break this, don't break this law. Don't transgress this action. Do all that I've commanded you. And we don't do what he's commanded us. We either sin by omission, by not doing what he's commanded us, or we sin by commission, by doing, uh, by not, by, by doing what he's told us not to do. It's either commission or omission. But yet, here it is, we see these things. And he is brokenhearted over that. His denial is perpetrated. Verses 63 through 65, we see where they have taken him in. And they beat Christ. They pummel the Savior. And it says, the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him in the face and, and, and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Mocking him, putting something over his eyes and hitting him and hitting him and smacking him. Kind of like you, you've probably seen that TikTok challenge where they, they sit the person down, they put a football helmet or a motorcycle helmet on them and, and they got about six people and they're slapping the back of the helmet and they're turning around trying to figure out who did it. But they ain't no protection for Christ. There's no protection. And they're hitting him in flush in the face. And so before he even goes to the Roman soldiers, this is the guard of Caiaphas' house. These are supposed to be religious people. And they're smacking Jesus and hitting him in the face. Tell me, who hit you, Jesus? Who hit you? They don't think they're known, but they're known in his heart. They're known in his heart. And as I said last week, or was it two weeks ago? It was two weeks ago. Jesus, the scripture tells us that he gave his back for them. He gave his back for them. He gave his cheeks and his beard because they plucked out his, and he gave his face for them. They smacked him. They mocked him. And this is all part of the fulfillment of that passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 50. So he's brought on into this court before the, the high priests and the council. In verses 66 through 71, he faces the Sanhedrin. And in verse 70, they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And Jesus said, You rightly say that I am. They proclaim that he is the Son. They rightly proclaim that he is the Son of God. You know, when people don't want to receive truth, they will perpetrate it as a lie. Because they don't want to accept it. They don't want to conform to it. And they don't want to live by the truth of it. They will perpetrate the truth as a lie. Jesus is who he says he is. We see there in verses 6 through 12 where responsibility is passed. You've got Pilate. Pilate uh, interrogates Jesus. He says, I find no fault in him. And then he says, I'm going to send him to Herod. And so he sends him over to Herod because Pilate found out that he was a Galilean. 
So Pilate sends him over to Herod. Herod interrogates him, and Herod says, we'll chastise him and release him, and we'll send him back over to Pilate. So that's what Herod does. Herod chastises him and mocks him and puts a robe on him. It tells us there in verse 11 of chapter 23. It says, Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had been at enmity with each other. It's amazing how when you've got a problem with the same person, it can make you friends, right? That happens. Well, that happens with Pilate and Herod. But you know, they don't find any fault with him. They still are like, what's going on with this? makes no sense. This man's done nothing. But the people who are most fearful of Jesus are the religious. Those who might have to change. They had gotten accustomed to their status and power. And Jesus was like, look, number one, your status is given by me and you don't really have any power. Jesus is like, all the power is in me, and I'm fixing to, uh, you're fixing to see it. You're fixing to see it. Now, Jesus isn't cocky. I'm, I'm saying this in a cocky way. But, but Jesus is never cocky. He's very humble about what he's going to do. But we see that they pass this responsibility back and forth, and then we see how the mob prevails. Look there in verses 13 through 25. It says, Then Pilate when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him, talking about Pilate, to release one prisoner to them at the feast. That was part of what they normally did. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. The mob had prevailed. Let's look here, verses 26 through 43. Kingdom paradise. This is what I've entitled this portion, kingdom paradise. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that might bear it that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women also mourned and lamented. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs, blessed are the wombs that never bore, blessed are the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? That was prophetic about what was going to happen when Rome came in. Talked about that last week. 
Rome came in, sieged the city, killed 600,000 killed 600, Jews, and took the others into captivity and destroyed the temple and the great city. There are also two other criminals, verse 32, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. So everybody could join in in the mockery, This is the king of the Jews, if they only knew the truth of what that actually said. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. He was not interested in repentance. He was just interested in what Christ could do for him. That's the difference. That's the difference. It's the recognition of who Christ is versus only wanting what Christ can give. He says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other criminal answering him rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, you hear that? What does Romans 10, 9 and 10 tell us? That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. This guy didn't have time for the second part of Romans to be fulfilled. <laughs> he didn't. But he confessed him as Lord, didn't he? He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, even on that cross. Scripture tells us, it says he turned to him. Then he said to Jesus, if, if you can, we've got Jesus here, but Christ on the cross, if you know anything about the cross, when they put those nails through their wrists, when they put that na those nails through his feet, when they punctured his side and blood and water flowed. The thing was, their, their, their lungs were pulled out. And to get breath back in their lungs, they'd have to pull themselves back in, putting pressure on the most sensitive spots of the entire body. They died from asphyxiation. They couldn't get air in their lungs, so they, they died that way, gasping for breath. He's trying to pull himself back up, and you've got this criminal who knew that he had, what he had done was wrong. His condemnation, the judgment on him was right and true and just. And he turns and looks at Christ. And he says, Lord, 
And he, and he can't even turn like this. Remember me. And you got to think, with every word spoken, it was laborsome and hard. Not in an air-conditioned room with carpet, with your nice clothes on, our nice clothes on. Exposed, they were mostly, they were naked, hanging up there for everyone to see. We get the PG version. Whenever you look in your Bibles, they've wrapped something around Jesus. But yet, they were, the whole cross was to show shame and to say, don't ever do this against Rome again. There's the whole reason why they put him up there. And this criminal is looking over and he says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He knew what was his. And he knew what could be his if he believed on him. And he called him Lord. And then Jesus said to him, Jesus said, Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Listen, our salvation is not contingent, is not contingent, on, uh, is not contingent on us accepting Christ. Our salvation is contingent on Christ accepting us. And how does Christ accept him? He says, today, assuredly, I say to you. There's no doubt in this. Confidently, I say, verily, verily, your King James may say, which I don't know if Jesus had the lung capacity to get out of verily, verily right there at that time. But he says, assuredly, I promise you, today, you will be with me. In paradise. You will be with me in paradise. There was no baptism. There was no works. There was none of these things that people say you got to have to go to heaven. It was, I call on you, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Recognizing who he is. Understanding that it's all upon him remembering me. Remember me, Lord. Because I know where you're going, and where you're going, that's where I want to be, at your kingdom. And the Lord says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Boy, I tell you what, that's, that's assurance, isn't it? That's awesome, right? That should get somebody excited. You know? I mean, how awesome is that? The King of kings and the Lord of lords said, you coming with me. When I breathe this last breath and you breathe yours, we're going to be walking right in. We're walking on up into heaven. You know, there's a song by the Gaither vocal band off one of their albums that said, walking on up into heaven in time. Yeah, yeah, we don't walk, we don't walk, we just walk on in. You know, and that's a great little old song. And, and that's the way it's going to be. You're going to be walking right on in with Jesus. That's the way that guy, that criminal was. He didn't have to worry about his past shame. He didn't have to worry about what he had did. It didn't even matter what he had done to put him on that cross. What mattered was, was what put him into paradise. And that was Jesus' reception of his confession. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. How awesome is that? Woo, that gets me excited. And then darkness fell over the land. Darkness falls over the land. And, and, and uh, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there's darkness. Why is that? Because usually dawn would break. But let me tell you something. Dawn was broken over Jesus' death. And it was dark. And then at about that ninth hour, the scripture tells us there, 
Jesus, in, in a loud voice, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. We know different gospels account a couple other phrases that Jesus said. Jesus said, uh, it is finished. And, and know this, guys, I'm not preaching this sermon today because I ain't got time. But understand, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The work for salvation was done. There's nothing you and I have to do for salvation. There's things we should do from salvation, but Christ did it all. Jesus paid the debt I owed. He lived a life I couldn't live, and he rose from a grave unlike I could never do apart from the power of the resurrecting power of Jesus. And one day I will rise. The Bible tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, you know, that's my spirit. But one day, there'll be a bodily resurrection. And I'll be caught up in the air with him, as it tells us in 1 Thessalonians. And I'll get to see him. And I'll have a glorified body, and I'll be with him for eternity. I'm looking forward to the day. Looking forward to the day. Very quickly, very quickly. Joseph of Arimathea, verses 50 through 56. He is a well-known man. Uh, he was on the council. He came before Pilate and he said, hey, I, I'd like to have the body of Christ. I've got a tomb. Because Jesus didn't have a tomb because he wasn't really planted for that part. But, but, the, but God the Father was. But uh, Jesus wanted to make sure he got everything done for the Father's will. Make it to the cross. Jesus take care. God the Father will take care of the rest, right? <laughs> so Joseph of Arimathea says I'll take his body and he takes his body down off the cross he wraps it, treats it and he takes it down to a brand new tomb that had never been used before and he goes in there and he lays the body in there the scripture goes on to tell us that Mary uh, uh, well at first off I don't want to tell you the names exactly just says the women go down there so that they can see where the body's laid so that they can get prepared for the spices they're going to put on the body okay so there's Mary, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and so they go down there, but they don't do anything on Saturday because that's the Sabbath, right? Jews don't do nothing on the Sabbath, okay? They rest. So they said they went down there, they checked it out. The body was in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea put it in the tomb. Now the Roman soldiers of the Gospels tell us that they went down there and rolled the stone in the path with the seal of the Roman uh, insignia on there, and those guards stood guard so that nobody would steal the body. Now, if you were in Sunday school this morning, you know that when the women ran back, they told the disciples, hey, somebody's taking a body. So obviously the disciples had not done it. The Roman guards had done fallen out. So they didn't do it because if a Roman guard had fallen out, they're going to die anyway. Those two are going to be put to death. Because that's just part of what the rules were. Grave robbers didn't do it because if you read your scripture this morning in Sunday school, grave robbers would have snatched that body out and ran. But we know the handkerchief was folded up. And laid down there. Nobody would have taken the time to do that. Especially with two Roman guards down there. It would have taken a, a host of grave robbers to overcome two of the best trained uh, soldiers that have ever been. So we know Christ rose from the grave. Christ rose from the grave. And, and so the women go down there on the Lord's day. There verses 1 through 12. He is risen. I finally made it. Hey, amen, right? He is risen. That's why we're here today, right? Verses 1 through 12. Salvation has been purchased in 44 through 49. The tomb's been procured there in verses 50 through 56. And then we get into all, everybody being perplexed over what has happened. Why is that? Because they ain't really listening to Jesus. They ain't been listening to Jesus. The whole time Jesus tried to prep them. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to rise again. 
I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to rise again. Destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. And the Pharisees were all like, you can't destroy the temple. This means so much to us. And Jesus says, you have no idea. In verses 1 through 12, all are perplexed. The women were headed down to the tomb to bring their spices, but found the tomb open and the Lord gone. And the scripture tells us they were greatly perplexed, which means they were in shock. They didn't know what to do at first. Thankfully, two nice men in shining garments showed up to direct them and calm them down. But it had the opposite effect on them. They got even more scared. Scripture tells they got scared. They were perplexed. They were afraid. The women bowed their faces to the ground. But the two, went, two people spoke to them. And what did they say? Look there in verse 5. He says, why do you seek the living among the dead? Were you not listening? Were you not listening? Remember how he spoke to you when he, when he was still in Galilee saying, the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise the third day again? Oh, then the light came on, and they remembered what he said. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And, of course, I just told you who all those was, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. It was... They were all perplexed. What in the world's going on? Nobody's really listening. Nobody's paying attention. How many of us is that? How many of us is that? We read the word and we're like, well, Jesus, I didn't know that's how that worked. Right there it is. I didn't know how that worked. Well, why not? Open your mind. Open your heart to the word of God. You got Jesus with you speaking to you. Why in the world? Oh, we're just scrolling Facebook. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The disciples weren't scrolling Facebook. They didn't have back then. They had a tablet, though. I'm just kidding. But they had all these things going on. Listen, we've got to pay attention to the Lord. We've got to focus on the Lord and, and listen to what he has to say. If not, we're going to miss so much in life. Uh, in verses 13 through 32, this is the second meal. I told you this, the subtitle of this is three meals. You're like, man, when were we getting to the second meal? <laughs> Golly, that was 30 minutes ago. We could have done eating a meal by now. Here we see the resurrection is professed. Look there. It's the road to Emmaus. There's a disciple named Cleopas. Now listen, you may say, where is he at? I've never heard of him in the 12. There's a lot of disciples, and they all had names. Can you believe that? There are a lot of disciples, and they all had names. But, but they weren't the apostles, okay? But so you've got Cleopas, and you've got another disciple. They're walking down the road. I'm giving you the brief paraphrase, okay, because I'm trying to Trying to bring this to a close here. And they're walking down the road. They're sad and they're depressed. They're downtrodden. And they're walking down the road. And Jesus just decides, hey, I'm just going to walk up here. Hey, what's going on, guys? And they're like, why are you so happy? Do you not know what's just happened in Jerusalem? He's like, no, tell me what's going on. Jesus is playing dumb, <laughs> which is really difficult for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so Jesus plays a little dumb to see what was going on. He says, so tell me about it. What, what happened? And so they began to tell Jesus of Nazareth, man, he was, he was, he was run through a court at night. He was tried, crucified, and, and, and he died, and he's in a tomb. And, and now some, some of the women went down there, and they found him, and they were like, we don't know what they've done with the body. And Jesus says, are you so dull? Are you so dull? Do you not realize what's going on? 
And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. This is verse 25. I'll read a little bit to you. Ought not the Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expanded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now you tell me this. You're just walking down the road randomly. You're sad, depressed. You know what's happened. You're a disciple. You've been around Jesus. And then all of a sudden, this dude walks up. And he's like, hey, I don't have any clue what's going on. What's going on? And they tell him about it. And he's like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus Christ, all the way from Moses and the prophets. Would you not be, like, blown away? Like, man, this guy is crazy. This guy's brilliant. How, is this guy, uh, is, he, is he one of the chief priests? I mean, how does he know all this stuff about this guy? How does he tie it back to him? Nowhere along the way. Because God is, 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 is cloaking himself, if you will, from their vision. But then they get to the house. They, they draw near to the village. And, and, and uh, the guys are going in. And Jesus, the scripture tells us, it's, it's like he's just going to keep on walking. He's like, yeah, we'll see you guys. Y'all have a good day. I'm going to keep walking. And those guys are like, Wait, no, no, no. Y'all come in. Sit down and have a meal with us. Come chill out a little bit. It's been a long walk. It's been a long day. We're wore out. We're mentally drained. We're emotionally drained. Listen, Jesus died today. He was our master. And we're some of his disciples, and we just don't know what to think. You know, like, sit down with us. And Jesus says, all right, you know, sure, why not? You know, who's going to pass up a meal? I'm a Baptist. You know, I'm just kidding. So Jesus sits down with them. And it says there in verse 30, Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with him, that he took bread. Oh, oh wait a minute. He blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. Boy, what a Jesus thing to do, huh? What a Jesus thing to do. He comes in and he sits down and he breaks the bread. And he passes it out. And they're like, and he's like, boop. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, some people argued that said, you know, Jesus would get up and run real fast and get away. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he, I think he literally vanished. I don't understand where Jesus was in the space-time continuum <laughs> in, in, in far as like how his body worked. But it tells us many a times that he vanished from amongst the people. And then, in just a moment, you're going to figure out where the third meal is. They were just overjoyed. They said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us when he talked with us on the road? And while he opened the scripture to us, then all of a sudden the light goes off. Man, this dude is brilliant. You know why he's brilliant? He's Jesus. It was Jesus. Hurry up, guys. Come on, put this food away. We got to go. So then we get to where the king is presented. We get from just the recognition that the king is risen to the realization that Christ has risen from the grave. And they get up. So they arose that very hour. And they returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together. And, and they, those guys were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They're like, we ain't worried about Simon. And they told him about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They're like, that's great about Simon. But we walked with him on the road. And then we said, come on in the house. Let's eat a meal together. Because he was just going to keep going. We don't know where he was going to go to. But we we're like, come on inside. We want to eat a meal with you. And they came inside, and, and he broke the bread, and he said it was like, it was like, like you remember when those scales fell off that dude's eyes, and then he could see? He said it felt like that spiritually, like, 
Like all of a sudden I could see him and it was Jesus. And then like I couldn't see him. He was gone. He vanished. Guys, we, we've got to get it together now. We got to get there. He's really alive. He's really alive. Nobody stole his body. He broke out the tomb. It couldn't hold him. That's, that's, it's real. It's, it's, it, he's really real. It's really alive. And then as he's telling them these things, it says, uh, it says, now as they said these things, this Cleopas and the other disciple, in that very hour, they're still sitting there going, hey, let's do this. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. Now, they're in the upper room because they're scared. They're afraid they're about to get arrested, beat up, something's going to happen. They're all up in the upper room. The doors have been locked and closed, and Jesus appears to them. So he vanishes. He's like, boop. So there he is. And Jesus says, peace to you. Now, listen, Jesus just pops up physically and manifests himself right here. Listen, I don't care how cool it is, I'm going to be scared. You know what I mean? Honestly, let's just be honest, right? I'd be like, that's cool. Boy, I'm scared. <laughs> But Jesus is there. And, and, and he's like, and, and it says there, verse 37, but they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when, they had, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, Have you got any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he ate it, and he took it and ate in their presence. There's that third meal. So he goes from a meal of institution with the Lord's Supper. He goes to a meal of um, recognition with Cleopas and the other disciple. And then he goes for a meal of realization. You want me to affirm that I'm alive and well with a bodily resurrection that one day each believer will get to participate in? Watch me eat this fish. Watch me eat this honeycomb. One day you will be like me, risen from the grave, not just spiritually, but bodily. That's the reason why we as Southern Baptists, we believe in a bodily resurrection. One day that will come. One day that will come. Christ, through these three meals, he shows us how life is. We find life in the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. We find life in recognizing who he is. He is Lord. And we come to have life through the realization that he truly did rise from the grave. Today, on this Easter Sunday, I hope you've come to all those conclusions. I hope that you understand that Jesus is who he says he is. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And nothing shall overcome him. And when you confess him as Lord of your life, you have a victory that can only come through the power of Jesus. I pray today that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that today is the day that you you humble yourself before the Lord Almighty. Your pride is broken and you surrender and submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, just like the thief on the cross did, and believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead, just as Cleopas and that disciple came to the realization of, you shall be saved. 